1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Kathleen Swarovski and Wendy Schroller, authors of Inequality Across State Lines, How Policymakers Have Failed Domestic Violent Victims in the United States, and correct me if I did mispronounce your name.
2: It's Caitlin Sidorsky but you were close.
1: <laughs> thank you. Can you tell us about the how did you begin this process? And tell us something about yourselves.
2: Caitlin, you want to take that first? Sure, no problem. Um, So uh, we started this when uh, I was still in grad school, and Wendy was the chair of my dissertation committee. And I was getting towards the end of my dissertation. uh, And, you know, could see that that the really heavy lifting of the project was coming to an end, and it would end up being a book later on. But the really have, you know, heavy lifting was done at that point. And Wendy had suggested a new project for us both because she was finishing up her work on her uh her latest book at that time, and she said she was interested in going and learning about women's inequality in the United States and how state laws. Uh, affected this uh, women's inequality in, in comparison to other women. Uh, and so we, we kind of embarked on this uh, new research project, which was generally about women's human security, and then focused a little bit more specifically on uh, women a- in domestic violence, because, you know, we could focus and we could talk a lot about women and sexual violence, which is a really important topic. Uh, but we felt that there was a lot to say about domestic violence policy in this country that had not been said yet. It had not been studied and really understood as well as it could be. So uh, that's that's how it started, was an idea originally from Wendy, and then we just kind of took it from there, and, and that was about eight years ago, and uh, it's been a really fruitful project since.
0: Yeah, yeah I can only uh, add that as women... Um, we we think about American politics and we think about the federal government, and we're seeing this, of course, right now with differential in terms of access to reproductive rights and choice, among other things, that the federal government can be the solution, uh, either Congress or the Supreme Court or, you know, uh, then of course that can that can turn depending on the composition of the Supreme Court. But in fact, so much of women's daily life is controlled or affected by state law and state practice and the implementation of local law enforcement practices, uh, judicial rulings, social welfare agencies. Uh, So much of it is determined at the state level. And we felt as academics that our profession, political science and public policy, just didn't pay enough attention to the importance of local governance and local laws in making sure that women stayed safe.
1: You start off by talking about the story of Morgan and Leah Tell us how important this case is to the examples that you give about domestic violence.
2: I think it's incredibly important because their stories really, and what happened to them, are really illustrative illustrative of the problems of federal and state law. Federal law says, uh, via VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, and the Lautenberg Amendment, that you are not allowed to possess a firearm or purchase a firearm if you have been convicted of a domestic violence misdemeanor or if you're under a domestic violence restraining order but that law at the time uh, was excluded dating partners so you know morgan rogers when before she had had leah um, she was not protected under these laws, meaning her abuser, her boyfriend at the time, uh, could have abused her and still had got, even gotten even gotten convicted and he would not have had um, his, his firearm taken away from him. Um, once she had Leah, then she was protected technically under federal law, but the state of Virginia at that time where she lived uh, did not enforce federal law. So yet again, it is illustrative of the Kind of problem, problematic nature of passing a federal statute and then not trying to enforce it. Uh, so, if you read the book, it's detailed a little bit more uh, closely. But you know, her abuser, the father of her child, uh, one day came into her, their home and shot and killed both her and their two-year-old daughter, and then fled the scene and um, fled from a police chase and got into a car accident where. He died and the other car that he hit, the two people in that car died. Um, so, you know, it was just a, an incredibly tragic story of not only what happened to Leah and Morgan, but what also happened to those other two, you know, random strangers to this story. Um, and all because, in part, you know, federal law was not followed by the state of Virginia to no detriment to the state of Virginia. There is no consequence to any state that does not follow federal law in this area. So it's really uh, a problem.
1: You talk about the Lesko bill and the victims of domestic violence and how a person could get a firearm within three days. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Um, In terms of the loopholes, in terms of uh, it's, there are so many loopholes in um, preventing that that domestic violence abusers can jump through to keep their firearms or to get new firearms because the way of enforcing either state law or federal law, for example, the Lautenberg Amendment, uh, you know, expanded on the Violence Against Women Amendment. This is 1994 for VAWA, 1996, That's a long time ago the Lautenberg amendments passed. And what it did was say that federal law says if you are convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence offense, you cannot have a weapon. You lose your right to have a weapon, own or possess a weapon. The problem is only 28 states um, have actually adopted laws that conform to the Lautenberg amendment. So we have a little bit more than half of American states say, okay, the same thing. But if the state doesn't have that law, then state's unlikely to enforce it. And prosecutors frequently plea bargain down domestic violence, um, sometimes to, to a you know basic assault or something else that kind of finds a way of making sure that the person isn't held accountable and it doesn't go into the state records the way that it should. So there are things that could be relatively easily fixed that would, you know put a marker on if you tried to legally buy a gun, that you could not buy a gun because you were convicted of domestic violence. Even in my own state of Rhode Island now, we have a report released by the Attorney General saying that people were convicted of or accused of domestic violence um, and gun charges and released. Now, the government took away their gun, but unless there's a conviction on the books, that person could conceivably legally buy a gun either in Rhode Island or some other state. So there's just it. It sometimes feels so frustrating that simple changes in how we're how we're charging domestic violence abusers, how we're recording those crimes, and just the willingness of law enforcement to enforce these prohibitions, uh, simply at the the time of purchase, uh, it's it's these things could help work, but they don't.
1: Tell us about your research methods and specifically your multi-method approach in this research.
0: I can take that one first. So our research, the first test, the first big thing we had to figure out is domestic violence law in states and then domestic violence-related firearm laws. There's a whole body of laws that relate to um, whether you can have a gun, what the prohibitions are against owning or possessing a gun, and which states had domestic violence crimes in that list where you cannot have um you cannot have a gun so the federal government does this through also prohibitions if you are if you are meet c- certain characteristics you can't have a gun and one of them is that if you are under a restraining order so We had to look to see uh, which states had which laws. And to use a a guideline, we used a report called the Committee on the Status of Women from 2015 that had a, a short chapter on women's security and safety. And they selected eight basic laws on availability of getting a gun based on whether you had been convicted of domestic violence. So we took those eight laws. And we looked to see around the whole country. First, we started with only um, 16 states. Then we went to 25 states. Then we went to 50 states. That's why, frankly, it took as long as it did because there's no uh, national database for this now. We have it now. Uh, one other researcher, April Zioli out of University of Michigan, she has a database of this kind as well. But it's taken years for all of us to collect this data. Um, and so it was a long process to confirm which, st- which states uh, passed these laws and when did they pass them because we really wanted to know what prompts a state to pass this law or what prevents a state from passing the law. So we went back to 1990 all the way through 2017 to track how these laws evolved over states over time. So it took a lot of individual work and it took a lot of research team work uh, to really comb the internet, comb you know, records wherever we could and create a new original database.
2: The other part of our research process, there's kind of two other parts I think is, you know, the 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 database but then the case studies that we did with the database to kinda of add the the rich descriptive: what is happening, what are the people saying in hearings, uh, what are the newspapers reporting at that time about what is happening with these laws, or what other reports are being written? Like there's a really great commission in Georgia, um, a fatality commission that has, you know, spoken a lot about the type of laws they feel like they need to be passed in the state of Georgia, of which they have absolutely no domestic violence firearm laws. Uh, so the case studies were kind of the second part of this to complement the database. And then the third part, um, which is actually we kind of started with this as we were starting to collect the domestic violence farm data, was surveys of public defenders and district attorneys. Because domestic violence data is so hard to come by, we felt like a smart move was to go to the people who were dealing with the cases and the people who were going through the court system most directly. Um, And so public defenders and district attorneys had some really interesting insights on what they thought about the laws in their states, how they felt victims were treated and offenders were treated, um, and what was happening with their cases. Were they ending up in jail time or financial penalty or rehabilitation to really get the sense of, OK, what is happening you know, at the state level and also the federal level, but then also what is happening on the ground in real time? Uh, to get that sense of, you know, were these laws really having any kind of effect in the way that they were supposed to be.
1: Now, from your research, I'm sure you know what states are advanced with the laws for domestic violence and what states are lagging. Can you uh, comment on that some?
2: I can start with the laggards. (laughs) I mean, you already mentioned one. So four states have uh, no domestic violence, firearm laws, Uh, They're typically not a very surprising list. Uh, Wyoming uh, is one of them. Georgia is one of them as well. Um, They're typically very conservative. They are also states that have also uh, not only not passed domestic violence firearm laws, but have also attempted to either directly go in direct contest with federal law saying that, you know, people, law enforcement agents, for example, may not be able to actually enforce federal firearm prohibitions at all, even domestic violence firearm prohibitions, or have tried to reinstate, um, uh, offenders' rights, Second Amendment rights, by uh, allowing people to expunge their misdemeanors after a certain amount of time, just in case they might be subject to uh, a domestic violence firearm law, even if it was at the federal level. So um, they are, are really problematic. Um, Mississippi is another one. Um, and they're the ones that really just have really fallen well behind the other states.
0: Yeah, and I would just add that that the reason that we focused on firearms, one of the big reasons, is that you know data is hard to come by. It's gotten better over the years, but of course, uh, you know, a, a good chunk of domestic violence cases are never reported by the victims, uh, and even when they are, it's up to the states to report that data to the federal government, the FBI, Uniform Crime Reporting System, in particular. So it's hard to get the data. But what we know, at least from the Centers for Disease Control study, uh, and then of course Congress had had. Had doesn't no longer has this, but did have a prohibition using federal money to study gun deaths, um, which seems um, you know uh, beyond uh, sensibility to us. But it had been in place for a long time, so the federal government couldn't do a lot of research. But now, now those restrictions are freeing up. But fi- nearly fifty percent of women who die from domestic violence die by gun. Fifty percent that adds up to thousands of women's lives. Um, over the years, so this is crucial. If you take the gun out of the house or out of the reach of a domestic violence abuser, you will reduce the likelihood that women and uh, children might be murdered uh, or injured by gun. So that's one of the reasons we really were so firm about this. But let's give you an example of. Uh, Florida, where Florida actually has a lot of these laws on the books. Uh, They have a red flag, an emergency uh, uh, risk uh, protection order so that you can take the gun away from somebody you think might do themselves harm or somebody else. They've used it 6,000 times in Florida. However, with the new law that removes the requirement to apply for concealed carry permit, Uh, That removes protection for women who are under threat of domestic violence because part of those laws to get a concealed carry permit, you you had to have a clean record. You could not have a domestic violence conviction on your record. If you did, you could not get a concealed carry permit. So the states that are now removing the entire permitting processes for concealed carry weapons are removing protection for women, even if they have the laws that we've already counted in our book now in the books. Now we have to go back in our new work. And look at the states that are revoking the concealed carry process, because that now endangers women.
1: Well, you've given us a lot of information. Now, when you're looking at demographics, what were you finding um, in in correlation to income, for example, and uh, domestic violence?
0: Um, well, there's, there's sort of the, 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 the popular misconception is that domestic violence is, is more profound um, in lower income communities or more frequent. We don't believe that. Uh, we do believe that in lower income communities, law enforcement tends to arrest more, uh, more frequently Uh, in lower-income communities, particularly in African-American communities, and they sometimes dual arrest, meaning they arrest both, um, usually the male abuser, 70 to 74% of all domestic violence abusers are men, uh, and women are their victims, Um, and So, uh, when you think about that, they are subject to arrests more, which means that we know more about those cases. Where in middle income and upper income families, uh, we've seen a number of cases over the last year where we've seen domestic violence, murder, suicides in families that everyone said, oh, there was never a problem. We don't understand how this could have happened because either they're not reported or they're taken care of by local law enforcement. So we are very suspicious of the assumption that domestic violence is more prevalent in lower-income communities. Um, We know that there are things that trigger domestic violence, outcomes and assaults, losing a job, a life-changing issue, substance abuse. Uh, But there are a lot, particularly with guns, there are so many cases of families that nobody believed this was happening, but in fact, there was consistent abuse and the abuser had uh, legal access to guns and then ends up tragically uh, killing their family. So that's what we've learned uh, in the process of doing all this research about domestic violence.
2: And I think it's also about the services that are available for, you know, people in lower income communities, right? So we just were attending a a webinar called Bearing the Burden out of UConn, um, which is also sponsored with Brown. And one of the panelists showed us a picture of a woman Uh, who was cleaning up, literally, she was cleaning up a crime scene, a firearm crime scene outside her street. She was known to have done this before, because I guess it has happened before in her neighborhood, in her area. And it's those kinds of things, those kinds of services that don't exist or don't exist to the same extent that they do in other communities that are wealthier. Um, You know, so, you know, uh, giving those kind of communities who free, have frequent levels of domestic violence or have gone through something tragic like a public shooting like that, you know, giving them the resources, you know, such as access to therapy or mental health services so that they can work through the trauma that they have experienced doesn't exist in lower income communities in the same way that it exists in middle or upper class communities. Uh, and so I think that's the other part is that, you know, the, the consequences of that kind of violence happening in those communities is just, you know, forgotten. You know, no one is is thinking about them and what they're going through having lived through it.
0: Yeah. I I would just add to that, that um, uh, language barriers can also be something that, um, that interferes with the successful implementation of domestic violence laws. Uh, We talk in the book about something called the lethality assessment program. I know that um, in states, uh, like Utah, for example, they do have uh, uh, police departments that, that administer lethality assessment. And that, and that is really police officers, law enforcement asking the victim a series of 11 questions to try to determine whether the incident that they're responding to could turn into something lethal where there'd be mortal danger to the victim and or their children. And this is a very effective tool initiated by, originally by the Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence. And we see that if there's a language barrier, that, that tool has to be administered in the language of the victim. And so you may say, well, Spanish, a lot of people speak Spanish in America, but we have a lot of diverse communities in America, immigrant communities. And and in general, there's sometimes a fear of calling for law enforcement help, but also even when they get there, there are language barriers that would interfere with even administering the LAP or even getting a, a good assessment of the danger that lurks in those households. So again you know, that may be more prevalent in lower income, uh, immigration communities, but it's not really about the income. It's about the language barrier.
1: Now let's look at another demographic. What about the racial classification of the victims?
0: Well, uh, uh, Megan Condon is a scholar who, uh, to our knowledge, has done the best study of this, and yet it's still ten years more than ten years old, uh, where they studied you know what happens in uh, African American communities. First of all, there are, there's a genuine and, and you know, realistic fear of calling the police for anything. Um, for fear that things could escalate. Second, there are stereotypical assumptions about African American women in particular that lead uh, law enforcement to sort of dispute who the aggressor is. And third, that leads to something called dual arrest. And you simply You see dual arrests in African-American communities at rates that are significantly higher than in white communities where the the man and the woman will be arrested. We also have found some links to incarceration where uh, as 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 much as 70% of women who are incarcerated were either the victims of domestic violence or grew up in a household with domestic violence. And um, and some disproportionate uh, uh, percentage of those women are of color. So we're seeing that the systemic effects of domestic violence, people, people react, say it's a tragic situation when somebody is injured or murdered, but the collateral and systemic effects, particularly disproportionately on women of color and African American women, are real. And they, they go well beyond the immediate household in which the Domestic Violence
2: Act occurred. Another uh, group of women who are really likely to be victims of domestic violence are also Native American women. Um, you know, by some estimates, upwards of 80 percent of uh, Native American women will be a victim of domestic violence in some way, shape or form in her lifetime. Um, and that is almost exclusively, although not always, um, because her perpetrator is a is a non-Native American. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, it's hard to find someone who has not been a victim of domestic violence if you identify as Native American, um, which is really sad because there's not much um, that can be done in a lot of Native American communities if you are the victim, um, if your perpetrator is non-Native American. Because you need a very special type of criminal jurisdiction that you need to go through a pretty lengthy and costly process um, to get passed and instituted by and approved of by the Amer- by the federal government in order um, to actually prosecute the individuals who are abusing the women of of your tribal community. Um, technically, federal prosecutors can prosecute these people. Uh, they typically don't. They typically just let it go, and therefore, the repeat abuse happens again and again. And again, and tribal governments can't do much about it. So it's really just a a shame that that's the state of what it is uh, for Native American women in this country.
0: And again, that's that's a really key point about where we passed a federal law, 2013, the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, contained a provision that would then grant. Uh, Tribal communities, the authority, as Caitlin Storsky says, um, but it's a very cumbersome and expensive process for the tribal nation to adopt this sort of criminal jurisdiction. It takes years. They have to meet all these requirements. They can get grant money from the federal government to do it. But we're studying the number of tribal nations that do this and the number is quite low. However, the good news is that when they do adopt it, they have a number of prosecutions that are successful that reduce um, the, the, the incidence of domestic violence. So it's a federal mechanism that could work if it was more readily accessible to tribal nations and easier to implement. And this is where... Our plea in this book is for the average citizen to say, what seems to work and what should we encourage and ask for to work from government to protect women? And what's the best level of government to ask for that at? You know, the local community administering on LAP, the states passing tougher firearm ownership and possession laws uh, and and uh, purchase laws for domestic violence abusers. And then again, the federal government, if you're going to pass something that's supposed to keep women safer, make it easier to implement.
1: Chapter two, you talk about the federal action and domestic violence. What is the federal response overall?
0: Uh, The federal government... Uh, Does not prosecute that many domestic violence cases as a whole. It sets a federal standard. That's what the Violence Against Women Act is. It's a federal standard adopted first in 1994 um, that says that this is a crime. And the reason it's so important to think about 1994 is that there had been um, uh, money given by the federal government to address violence in families, the Family Violence Prevention Act, all the way going back to the 1980s. But that was housed in the Department of Health and Human Services as. As a public health problem. And that is because domestic violence had been considered a private matter within marriage up and through the 1980s. And the government, especially the federal government, did not consider it a crime. They simply, it wasn't prosecuted. The federal government didn't have it on its radar. You get to 1994, and now President Joe Biden, then Senator Biden, had been sponsoring a Violence Against Women Act for several years and finally passed it. And enacted this law that said now the federal government will treat this as a crime and, it, and the prosecution of it and the standards will be, um, will be housed in the uh, Justice Department. So the Office on Violence Against Women, which gives out $500 million a year in grant money to prevent and treat domestic violence, that is housed now in the Justice Department, which says to every American, this is a crime. And every state government, this is a crime and it's not a private matter anymore. It is a public health issue and it is also a crime that needs to be prosecuted. But the, again, as the federal government frequently does, it left it prosecution of it to state and local authorities rather than taking on the task of prosecuting these crimes in federal court.
2: And VAWA is reauthorized um, every few years, so it was reauthorized, you know, after 1994 and 2000 2005 and then 2013, and then it hits a roadblock because Democrats uh, in the House particularly, but also in the Senate, uh, really wanted to close what I had mentioned earlier with uh, Morgan and Leah Rogers' story, which is called the boyfriend loophole. And the boyfriend loophole, um, you know, again, if if you didn't have a child with your uh, abuser or if you were not married or common law, uh, the abuser could then still go and access a a firearm. Um, And, you know, Democrats really wanted and were really pushing for this to be a part of the next reauthorization of VAWA. And it ended up putting it off the reauthorization. So the reauthorizations failed multiple years in a row until finally Last spring or last late winter in 2022, um they decided to just abandon, the, including the boyfriend loophole. And in order to get Baba to be reauthorized, um, and it did as, as soon as they took that out. Then the Republicans uh, of Congress were like, "Okay, let's we could do this." Um, uh, unbeknownst to them, not a, but a few months later. Uh, the Uvalde school shooting would happen. And that school shooting started with an act of domestic violence at home when the shooter shot his grandmother. Um, and then went on to, uh, unfortunately, to the school. Um, And in response to that incident, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was passed in June, and part of that was closing the boyfriend loophole. So it's a really interesting policy history because the boyfriend loophole was a sticking point for so many years in getting viable reauthorized, which is directly related and says in the title that it's about violence against women. And it couldn't be a part of that law, but it ends up being part of a law that is in response um, to uh, a, a school shooting uh, instead.
1: You looked at six different states, and you did uh, case studies. Was there something really that you found out from these six states that gives us a clue about domestic violence?
2: Uh yeah. I think I think how. What's so fascinating about these six states and really digging into them is how on its surface, you know, you ask pretty much anyone and they'll say that they don't agree with domestic violence and domestic violence should be, you know, obviously addressed and people should be prosecuted and, you know, women should be safe in their own homes. And that is very, uh, that's common, you know, common sense, conventional wisdom opinion. But then the moment you start to ask those questions, but apply it to something that is as partisan and polarizing as gun control, then people start to change their tune. And then it starts to go, well, you know, their Second Amendment rights, well, who's going to be actually in charge of, you know, confiscating that weapon? Or, you know, I had read as part of this, uh, you know, research, you know, someone in Georgia, Again, one of the states that doesn't have any of these firearm laws was like, well, you really can't take a firearm away because that's their property and they need to be compensated for it. And so, you know, all these questions from people who would normally say that we should address domestic violence uh, and do so forcefully, the moment gun control enters into the conversation and you really start to see it in like the committee hearings and the news reports from different states, and particularly these six states, you really see that, you know, people start to change their mind because, gun control, and Second Amendment rights are so polarizing and so partisan um, that it it not only affects state legislatures, it holds up federal legislation for years via VAWA reauthorizations, um, even though it is pretty much common sense that, you know, we should address uh, domestic violence in this country.
0: Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just add quickly to that. The, the striking thing to us is that there are Republicans and Democrats in state legislatures across the country that are trying to address domestic violence in all sorts of ways in, in earnest. And there are some really good evolutions there. But the question is, how is it that in Wisconsin, for example, they sort of work out a deal between the Coalition Against Domestic Violence leaders, state legislators, and the National Rifle Association after a particularly heinous uh, domestic violence-motivated mass shooting? And of course, Lisa Geller at Johns Hopkins has been studying this, as is April Zioli, that there's just this really strong connection between the background of mass shooters and some domestic violence and their background, either they've committed or been been subject to it. Um, But when you look at that, why does Wisconsin get this done? Where they say to the NRA, look, we're not trying to take away anyone's legal right to own a gun per se, but we really have to keep guns out of the hands of domestic violence abusers that have been convicted of this crime. But another state like Georgia, you can't get anywhere with that kind of bill. And so is that because Georgia and Wisconsin are so very different in their desire to protect women? I mean, that's something that we try to get at in this book, but we know that we have to do further exploration uh, because it just doesn't make sense um, that a woman should live in Wisconsin and be safer, theoretically, from death uh, by gun in a domestic violence situation than a woman who lives in Georgia. It just seems like the ultimate level of inequality.
1: In Chapter 5, you talk about the courtroom. How are cases prosecuted and defended in the courtrooms?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing to note about is that most cases won't make it, right? So a lot of domestic violence cases in particular will not make it through the court system for a multitude of reasons. One may be victim testimony. So victims may not want to testify against their abuser. Uh, they may not want to because, A, the cycle of abuse, you know, they, they may want to try and reconcile privately with their abuser. They may be worried about the financial costs uh, of uh, having their abuser, especially if it's someone who is like a partner, has they, they have a job, they contribute financially to the household, or support children, so they don't want to do that. They may also be worried about, you know, treatment, unequal treatment, particularly if we're talking about uh, men of color and how they go through the, the court system, the judicial system, so they may not want them to be a part of that. So there's a whole host of cases that will never even really make it much past arrest, uh, because victims may not want to continue on with the case. Um, and, you know, that is problematic for actually potentially holding the, the abusers accountable and or getting them the help they may need, because a lot of domestic violence cases and um, the the sentence may, a part of that sentence may be, you know, getting some type of therapy, right? Getting some type of help to help uh, understand why people abuse, what they're doing, what are their triggers? How do they not do this again? So, um, you know, that's kind of the sad part is that, you know, we're not going to sit here and say, oh, everyone who commits an act of domestic violence needs to go to jail. That's not necessarily the answer for every single person who commits an act of domestic violence. But there are other parts of sentencing that can include mental health and therapy that are re- better intervention programs that could be helpful for abusers and victims alike. Um, and they will never get to that stage uh, if they don't go through the, the court system. Um, So that's one kind of answer to that question. Uh, In terms of how else uh, the courts treat the cases that actually uh, come before them. So we uh, have started digging into this a little bit more in our new research on judges, um, where we kind of ask what What influences judges in taking away firearms during bail hearings and then during actual cases? Um, And we're finding that in particular, a a state having a gun surrender law explicitly written in their statute uh, is a good contributor to a judge actually removing a firearm. So that's really great. Uh, we haven't found evidence that ideology of the judge or of the state that they're in is influencing their decisions. So that's, I, I think, positive uh, because it means that the judge's ideology and feelings on potential Second Amendment rights uh, are not, as of right now, from what we can tell, influencing um, their decisions to take away bail, uh, a firearm during bail or, or cases more generally. Um, So that's kind of newer research on how the cases are being handled from the judge's perspective.
0: Yeah, and I think the broader story about the courts is that domestic violence takes up a lot of the court's time because even if a case doesn't make it to trial, it's a plea bargained down. Uh, adjudicating uh, domestic violence, I mean, according to our data, can be as many as much as forty or forty-four percent of all the cases that prosecutors and, and, and criminal defense attorneys deal with. Public defenders, um, they deal with them. That's a huge amount of time and resources that our judicial system has to deal with just to adjudicate domestic violence cases. And so, again, it's something that is a policy issue that is sort of hard to tackle, but really permeates so much of everybody's lives uh, throughout our judicial system, but also you know, women's daily lives. And, and we want to draw more attention to it, not just because of, of itself, But also because of the impact it has um, throughout our system.
1: The states that have laws concerning victims who are treated as offenders, what about this right to vote? Explain that to the audience. What happens?
0: Uh, Right. So if you are um, if you are a woman, let's say, and you are dual arrested for domestic violence and you are convicted um, and you might go to jail, actually, or if you're convicted of felony, typically felony domestic violence, then you are, um, you know, do, do not have the right to vote anymore in your state until that right is restored. And typically it's not restored until you have completed your incarceration And you've completed parole and you've paid any kind of court or incarceration fees that go along with it. So that's what, you know, 42 states in the country allow people who have felony convictions to vote once they have jumped through all these hoops, you know, served whatever time, served parole and paid all their fines. But that can be a very long period of time. And so if the initial injustice is to dual arrest for a woman who's either trying to defend herself or shouldn't have been arrested in the first place because she was never the aggressor, and then she ends up with a felony conviction, she's denied her right to participate politically.
1: In Chapter 7, you gave us some pathways for improving women's human security. Tell us about that.
2: Sure. So um, one of the things, you know, just to kind of start with that I think is is relatively easy to grasp, is, you know, expanding the scope of domestic violence laws. So, um, you know, we, we discussed and we have the, the power and control wheel uh, in our book, uh, that dis- and we describe domestic violence. And I think a lot of people understand that domestic violence is more than just, you know, physical violence or sexual violence but that's not the the things that are not physical or sexual violence are not covered in domestic violence laws and these are typically called co- coercive control so where i you know isolate my victim, where I threaten my victim, or I control their finances, or where they go, um, or, you know, verbally abuse them. All of those areas of coercive control are not covered in domestic violence statutes. Um, I think in some ways they're a little bit easier now than 30 years ago to actually provide evidence for coercive control because so much happens via text message or, you know, over email or social media. Uh, But they're still not really included uh, in the US, at least there's a, some uh, in uh, overseas that are trying to start to include this. and I think technically California was trying to include this as part of custody hearings, but it's it's just not there. And that's what a lot of abuse is, and that's what a lot of abuse starts at. right It doesn't typically start at someone hitting you. It starts with these other uh, you know coercive you know measures being taken against you that then wind up being physical. So that would be uh, uh, one. Um, Another one which Wendy had mentioned uh, briefly was uh, increasing the use of lethality assessments. Uh, Again, there is no requirement that states have to adopt lethality assessments. Uh, Sometimes it comes down to what precinct is responding to you uh, on whether or not you'll be given a lethality assessment. They are certainly by no means perfect, but they are a, a pretty good tool Uh, to recognize which women or which victims in particular are most likely to be in danger from being murdered by their abuser. Um, And so, you know, those we think should be adopted much more consistently uh, at the state level, um, instead of it just being decided at the local precinct level, and then it's just decided upon who, which law enforcement agent actually answers your call for help.
0: Yeah and there's 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 also things that that we don't cover necessarily um, comprehensively in the book that are 21st century issues like technology. So if you have a phone and you're on a family phone plan and you're a woman who's abused and wants to leave your abuser, and we know that the period between the time you make that desire clear to your abuser or you get a, a temporary restraining order or the abuser is forced to leave the home is the most lethal time potentially for women. It's when most of murders by a strange husband's or partners or dating partners um, happens. So how do you do that? You have to go get a second phone, a new phone, when all of your life is on that phone and that's what your bank accounts are tied to, that's what your security codes for everything is tied to, that phone number, but you have to actually cancel that phone number and get some other phone. How do you do that if the partner controls all the finances in the household? So there are actually practical things now, especially with the digital economy, that makes it harder for women to hide harder for women to leave their abusers and so we support uh, things like the address confidentiality program where you can get a separate po box that is a technical legal mailing address um, for yourself so that uh, you can apply for things that you can be reached um, maybe temporary you know temporary pay by go you know go by phones that are available to people in shelters when they go to a domestic violence shelter, that public funds could be used for that. So they have a phone, you know, uh, technology is supposed to help everybody. But if you think about somebody who's trying to reinvent themselves and escape an abuser, technology actually makes that much more difficult now than it used to. And that's something we need to be thinking about as well
2: even something like housing laws, right? So uh, some states have passed protections for women to be able to break leases for like apartments early if they're trying to escape an abusive situation and other states don't have that. So, you know, if a woman is trying to leave the, a situation or leave her apartment where she, her abuser knows she lives, um, she could then get a fine because she then didn't, you know, give the certain amount of notice or ended her lease early. So it's just so much more, you know, I think when people say, I think rather flippantly, well, why didn't you just leave the abuser? That is a very privileged statement because it is so much more complicated and complex to leave an abuser than most people would think and then try to remain, um, you know, either hidden or protected so that they can't find you.
1: After people read your book, what is the overall message you want to leave the reader with?
0: That um, domestic violence is a comprehensive public health and criminal justice issue that prevents women from living their fullest, most equal lives in America, and that one of the big obstacles to ensuring that all women are safe are uh, is federalism, is state laws, uh, and the resistance of state legislatures to take guns out of the hands of domestic violence abusers.
1: Well, I've taken taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on?
0: yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you about one, and then Caitlin will end, I think, with another very quickly, is um, we are now looking at the actual funding that the federal government distributes across all states and to organizations, state governments, local governments, from the Office on Violence Against Women over the last 15 to 20 years to see which states get more money versus less, fewer grants, what do those grants do, what, who are they given to, which organizations, and is there any relationship between the steps that, ta- that states take to keep women safer adopting laws, enforcing laws and forcing laws and doing best practices and the amount of money they receive from the federal government? Or is there a big disconnect between what the federal government funds and what states are actually doing? And do we need to tighten that relationship up and hold states more accountable for what they're doing in order to receive federal funding?
2: And then the other two projects beyond that that we're working on are one I've already mentioned, which is the judges. So, you know, we really dug into the district attorneys and the public defenders to understand their perspectives of what's happening with the cases they handle. But at the end of the day, the judge is the one who could really make or break how safe a woman is at the end of the day because um, they get to decide bail, how high bail is, what are the conditions of bail, and of course, whether or not firearms are a part of that. Um, as well, and then if there's any follow up. So, we have a survey out to judges across the United States right now who handle domestic violence cases, and we're really digging into the the implementation aspect, right? So, we did a lot of the adoption and formation in this book, and now we're looking to see how it's actually implemented and if it's implemented well. And then, our final project is um, I had also kind of tangentially mentioned uh, was uh, digging into domestic violence on Native American communities specifically. Those uh, special uh, criminal jurisdictions um, that have that only thirty-one tribal nations, as of now, have implemented to try to allow them to prosecute uh domestic violence that occurs uh, by a non-native American uh, to a Native American um, on tribal lands uh, and again very few of these tribal nations have actually implemented this they are from what evidence has been provided they are successful and they do their job uh, but it's it's a big hurdle for a lot of these tribal nations to be able to actually uh, adopt these and we're trying to understand that, kind of mechanism a little bit more in the hopes that maybe it could be made a little bit easier in the future so that more tribal nations can actually have the power to prosecute those who uh, commit crimes against against their members.
1: Well, thank you so much. And we'll be looking forward to all of those projects. And again, thank you for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having us.